Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Keanu Sores as always. Uh, and thanks for sticking with us during this uh, hiatus that we've been on since the beginning of the year. Um, holidays work and uh, attempted coups definitely uh, made it a little bit difficult to get to the mic. But we are back and we are extremely excited about the lineup of shows we have coming up. Uh, this episode is Point Break with Dr. Alicia Cosma. And this is... I think the best uh, conversation we've had yet. I am so excited with how this turned out. I feel great about uh, Alicia and everything she brought to the show, and I really feel great about this episode. Point Break is one of my personal favorite uh, Keanu films, and it was the first time Jasmine had seen it, so we get a lot of different perspectives here. Um, Alicia will give you some details about some upcoming publications she has uh, in the pipeline, so definitely follow her on social and check that out. She's a brilliant writer and a brilliant film critic, and we were lucky to have her. Um, some other shows we have coming down the pipeline will be The Devil's Advocate, the Lake House, which is an is one I know that people will be very excited about. That is a crazy film. Uh, Replicas and Siberia. Uh, and then, of course, there will be uh, many more to come as the man has made and continues to make quite a few films. Um, so, yeah. So just a reminder that you can find us on social at the underscore Keanu Soares. Uh, that is on Twitter or Instagram. And Keanu Soares is, of course, a portmanteau of Keanu and connoisseurs. Uh, you can find me at G. Brett Williams, and you can find Jasmine at Blueberry Jelly. But if you want to talk about the show, come to the show's page. All right. Thanks, everyone, and uh, enjoy Point Break. We sure did. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Keanu Soars, your hopefully favorite podcast about the film oeuvre of Keanu Reeves, uh, We are where we are breaking down every Keanu movie and ultimately deciding whether or not it's just a different version of The Matrix. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, uh, Jasmine. And Jasmine, you want to introduce our guest today and the movie that we're going to be doing? Yes. Absolutely. So, uh, hi, I'm Jasmine, and I'm very excited to introduce my very dear friend, I would like to consider, <laughs> Dr. Alicia Cosma. Um, she was actually um, a TA of mine in college, and I've just been obsessed with her and how she looks at movies. And so, Alicia, say hi. Hi, Brett and Jasmine. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to talk about Keanu for an hour. And I'm thrilled to be able to talk yet again with Jasmine about movies. Yeah. And our first doctor. So <laughs> um, really an auspicious occasion on I all the say, Now I really have to live up to that. I guess. <laughs> you, are, you are a critic, an, an official critic, as opposed to two people with opinions. <laughs> <laughs> which is what the rest of this podcast is. Um, Jasmine, uh, what movie have we brought Alicia on to talk about today? Yes, we will be talking about the very seminal Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. I yeah. it. <laughs> I'm so excited. This is, uh, <laughs> after The Matrix, this is my favorite Keanu Reeves film. It is definitely the most formative in my love for this actor and and also the love for this director uh this is mm -hmm. i would you know there's a case to be made in my own head canon that Catherine bigelow is my favorite director so um yeah i'm excited to talk about this excited to have alicia on to talk about this jasmine what is point break about 
in the simplest yeah. terms to a person <laughs> who's never seen the film? What? How would you describe Point Break? Yes. So I am going to actually um, describe it two ways because one is the very straightforward way. And then one was where I had to kind of wrap my head around it. Um, so the first one, very straightforward. Keanu Reeves plays Johnny Utah best name ever um a former collegiate football player turned rookie fbi agent he goes undercover to infiltrate a group of surfers to figure out whether they are a group of bank robbers called the ex-presidents patrick swayze plays a surfer's ringleader named bodie who's a zen but very very utilitarian wild man whose ultimate goal in life is to ride this 50 year old australian storm wave um it also is a film that makes you want to live the surfer lifestyle, like the reckless freedom, the meditation, the one life to live mindset. Um, but it's incredibly, there's like a tinge of unbearable sadness around it. Um, everyone's living on the edge because if you don't, then you don't really want ultimate happiness. At one point, Patrick Swayze's character says it's better to die doing what you love than supposedly live forever stifled. Um, and it's definitely, you have to reach pure happiness to be like the peak person that you are, but any bullshit that you've done to get to that pure happiness, you're going to get karmic retribution a thousand times over. So it was just a very different movie going into it with like zero expectations aside from like all the gifs I've seen and everything. And then at the end of the movie being like, interesting, what, what just happened? What did I just see? So. <laughs> now, <laughs> I would like to point out that audience, Jasmine, is this your first time seeing Point Break? <laughs> it is. It is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I'm so happy we, for you. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, I wish that I could. I wish that I could uh, to go back and have this that moment for the first time. And Alicia, we talked before we started recording that that you and I are are the same age and saw this at the same time, which means we saw this came out at the same time um, in our lives. And so, what was your first? experience with Point Break? Do you remember the first time you saw it? And and I said, how many, you know, how, how much time have you spent with it since then? So I do remember the first time I saw it and it's this very like 90s childhood memory in that I was not old enough to go and see it in the theaters. And it was certainly because it was an R-rated movie, not something that my parents would rent for me from the video store, mm -hmm. RIP to video stores. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I had a really good friend in middle school. Her name is Letitia and her parents would rent literally any movie that we wanted to watch. <laughs> yeah. And so I, once I knew it came out on like VHS was just waiting for the next sleepover I had at Letitia's house. Mm -hmm. And we went to our local video store, Ultimate Video, my favorite place on earth. Sounds and amazing. we rented Point Break. We also rented Sleepaway Camp 2, but that's another oh. podcast and a different <laughs> But <laughs> we rented Point Break, and I remember watching it and just thinking, I can't believe I've had to wait this long to see this movie. This movie is everything. Mm -hmm. And I was mm -hmm. absolutely reminded of that, you know, when I watched it again. Um, you know, before talking to you both about it, it had been some time since I had seen it. I do remember watching it kind of here and there, particularly when I was in college, it was something that like we, my friends and I would return to, but it had been quite some time since I saw it. And watching it again made me so happy, but also um, kind of slightly 
confused and we'll talk about this a little bit so one of the things that I think about a lot in like my day job as a professor is women directors yeah um and watching this as both a Keanu Reeves movie and a Catherine Bigelow movie was kind of two um like opposing experiences for me can you elaborate a little bit on on, yeah yeah like how so one of the things that I really that I really like about this film is that Keanu in this movie is truly like kind of everything that anybody could want, mm-hmm. right? He is super hot. Yes. He's that guy you <laughs> want to take. He's the want to bring home to your parents, but he's also the person you want to be best friends with. Mm-hmm. Like he has the vibe of like your best friend's hot older brother. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, like that is 100% like the Keanu vibe in this movie. But at the same time, Bigelow is is interested in kind of giving you what I'm going to call the essence of Keanu, mm. but almost wholly uninterested in the story of the film. Mm-hmm. So at least for me, kind of aesthetically and from like a like a directorial framework, there's a lot of really amazing set pieces in this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of the like hallmarks of what I would consider like the Bigelow kind of like action set pieces. Yeah. But so much of the work she has to do is directing around a truly script. <laughs> Um, and I was like doing a little bit of research because I never kind of thought about the script that much. And I realized that one of the co-writers of the script also wrote Varsity Blues. He did. Yeah, oh. which to me is like also a separate conversation, but super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> because one of my notes from the film is just all dudes love football heroes. Yes. And yeah. like, yeah. Um, and so, so much of the work she has to do is directing around the script. And so some of it seems a little bit more utilitarian than I would consider Bigelow's directing in some of her other films. Well, and it's interesting you say that because I, I I know that like she and Cameron at some point did doctor this script. So mm-hmm. I don't know like how much was there. Like I, I would be interested to see like a side by side comparison between like what what they added you know, and if it's and if it's any of the moments that you like best from the film, is it like is it the stuff that she and James Cameron wrote together, or did they only write the action sequences together? Because like you are right that like it's very much a Catherine Bigelow action film in the way that like she straight up is like inventing new camera techniques in certain mm-hmm. points to like capture the sequence the way that she wants to, and not accepting that like she she's not going to accept corners on how she like on how she captures these ash sequences like mm-hmm. the very famous chase sequence the foot chase sequence like you know they're inventing this like so that she can capture the whole thing on this like really raw 35 millimeter like footage that makes it feel like you're in it like mm-hmm. and, and i do i remember that that like growing up like i like there's so much about this film that i remember from like a small boy's perspective just being like this incredible action film but that that chase sequence stands out i think in everyone's mind as just like how kinetic it feels and that's a word she uses to describe her own filmmaking often mm-hmm. is that she's trying to tell you know she's trying to make things feel kinetic and i do think it's fair to say that like she seems a lot more concerned with how she can film these huge set pieces than she is necessarily about improving the overall text of this narrative because <laughs> nothing here is sub like no. 
everything is surface. And I, I do think that the, that the film is telling, like I, I read it, watching it now at 40 and like really paying attention to it and trying to watch it critically for the show. I read like a very strong kind of like, like, cons- like, like a, an almost criticism of toxic masculinity and how like, like there are these two men who are very much like lying to themselves about the, the overall morality of the systems that they serve. Mm. And like, ultimately like all this is like, all it really is, is just a film about like what happens when men like are so self-interested and like so delusional about like their own motives and their own desires and so incapable of accessing intimacy in any like meaningful ways that they end up just leaving so much trauma in their wake and like i think that this film does genuinely like convey that message if you if you watch it through that lens but like to your point it's not subtle (laughs) (laughs) nothing about it is it's not attempting to like subtly like tell you that story which i think is interesting because later she goes on to like very much subtly tell you know i mean the movie that she won an oscar for is hurt locker which is like Mm -hmm. a film that's all about like the male like like violence standing in for intimacy in male relationships Mm -hmm. um which i think point break does but does it in a far less subtle way (laughs) um Jasmine, is this on your first viewing uh, as as an adult? Like, what was how did what were you you, you know you're you're hearing both of these perspectives? How were you feeling as you watched it through? What was your kind of what was your feeling about the story that Point Break is attempting to tell? I mean, it's it's super interesting. So, like I said, I came in with like kind of all and yet none of the expectations because it's like I saw all the gifs of like a wet piano giving a thumbs up in the rain. And then um, I honestly, Alicia, when you had mentioned that like a lot of people tend to see this as like a homoerotic film, but you say that it's erotic. It's like I went in being like, oh, I'm so pumped to see this like homoerotic film that's like super queer. And I can't wait to see like how Bodhi and um, Johnny like smolder at each other. And um, so that was the mindset I had going into this. <laughs> so that was that was interesting. Um, it was also I just couldn't get past how like young Keanu is throughout the whole thing Mm -hmm. and um I think it's like similarly to it it was just like in Devil's Advocate where I was just like he's so young and like fresh and the system is gonna like take hold of him and ruin him I know that's gonna happen but like he, he just has like all these like ideals and stuff like that yeah I don't know um it's not a good script there's very good lines in it um and the action set pieces are really good um there are yeah. memorable lines in it. I'm not sure yeah. how good any of them are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're iconic, like young, dumb, and full of calm. Like, about Jesus to say. Christ. <laughs> and like, and that's, that scene sticks out to me still. It's always stuck out to me as a child, as an adult. I'm like, he walks in and like within three minutes of meeting his boss, his boss has already decided that he hates him. And yeah. then he's going to say things to him like, I know you, you're just young, dumb, and full of cum. I know guys <laughs> like you. And I'm like, who, who talks like this? I feel like a central conceit obviously the like overbearing i'm gonna scream at you for no reason like (laughs) like like um uh you know police commissioner is like a hallmark of this genre and i you know but i think that it's 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 so funny because like i feel like all of these cop hero movies like it's like 
it's almost like inherent that like they are solving a problem that just does not actually exist in real life. Like there <laughs> is not like a ring of like, like there aren't a ring of like massive violent bank robberies going on in the United States every year. <laughs> that was the thing I remember. They were like, Los Angeles is the capital of bank robberies. I was like, but is it? But is it, what does that even is mean, it, really? Because it's not the 70s. And, like, what are we yes. talking about? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there's just all this, like, just, I when the movie opens up and he's, like, in some FBI training simulation. Yes. In the rain, looking so hot. So oh, my God. Hot. So, so attractive. But yeah. also <laughs> shooting the most cartoonish cutouts of bad guys, wearing <laughs> jeans and a t-shirt, yeah. and then, like, getting a thumbs up from his, like, instructor. And I was yeah. Like, where in Quantico does this happen? <laughs> what am I like? What am I missing here? I don't remember this from Silence of the Lambs. Like, what kind of that. FBI is this? <laughs> exactly. I think that opening sequence is super interesting, and let's let's talk a little bit about like because I think it gets us into um, a really nice discussion about like how this film is shot and what it's conveying in the way that it's shot. Because you know, again, we talk about like it's not subtle, um, but like in that opening sequence, I think it's really interesting because you have this dynamic where like you're introducing both of the main characters johnny and Bodie, and they're both in water but like mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. Bodie is seen as like Bodie, who's ultimately going to be the film's villain although i i question if the film thinks that Bodie is a villain um you see Bodie like at harmony with water he is surfing he's moving mm-hmm. fluidly through the water he understands that the water is a force of nature it's not something to be resisted it's something to give yourself to and then keanu's character johnny is like run like you said alicia he's running through the water he's crashing mm-hmm. through water he's being violent in water and he's kind of like it's almost like water is like this it's like this thing that's going to control both of their lives for the rest of the film but they both have were introduced to them in like having very different relationships with it where like you're seeing one person being very violent in that water and you're seeing Bodhi who's supposed to be the violent villain of the film being very fluid and, 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 and kind of loving and like, and really like emerging, you know, kind of immersing himself in the, in water as a fluid thing. And I think it's an interesting character piece. Cause it's like, it's telling you like the journey that these characters are both going to go on. It's like, it's, it's almost saying that like, you know, it's interesting because like i think that like keanu's character johnny like he is a paragon to jasmine's point he's like he feels like just like a do-gooder on every level and you are supposed to kind of engage with him that way but like he also like he 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 serves a violent system he serves a system that really only benefits like the protection of property and capital like he isn't like actually like He's, you know, he's, he's just constantly trying to prove something to his parents. He's, you know, you could tell that like, he's got this whole dad complex Mm. where like he, he was a failed football player. He blew out his knee. Now he's at, he went to law school and became an FBI agent. And it's, there's that, that one sequence where he's lying to Lori Petty about who he is so that That's he can kind so of so terrible i know so that like, it's so insane truly manipulating her traumatic grief so he can learn how to serve so he can but learn how to serve thing, like he's not you're absolutely right brett he is serving this really corrupt and oppressive system but he's also not good at his job no <laughs> like he goes undercover and uses his real name name? yeah (laughs) not only does he use his real name he like offers it up he just shouts it 
after Lori Petty, after she rescues him from drowning the first time that they meet. Yeah. And this is like, it is my favorite scene of the movie. He says, my name's Jenny Utah. And she paddles away and she's just like, who cares? Who cares? Yes. <laughs> who cares? Yeah. Uh-huh. But he's just, he's not good at his job. And it seems like no one, but, and maybe no one's ever said this before, Gary Busey is good at their job. Like no yeah. one at the FBI <laughs> is good at their job, but uh-huh. Gary Busey is somehow killing it. Yeah, it's yeah. really, it's, it's, it is, you're right. Like Gary Busey is the only competent like law enforcement officer yeah. in the entire film. And everyone else just seems to be like, like in a community theater production of what the FBI looks like. Yeah, I yeah. mean, they literally yeah. miss a bank robbery because he's busy buying meatball sandwiches. Or <laughs> yeah. Like it is yes. happening behind them. Like it's an Abbott and Costello movie. When, he, <laughs> like... when, they, when they raid, when they raid War Child and his like crew of Nazi surfers. Oh, yeah. His, his weirdly diverse crew of Nazi surfers. Also, <laughs> yeah. has anyone ever heard a more ridiculous phrase than Nazi surfers? again and i think like maybe this goes back to that like script tweaking problem because mm. brett i think you're absolutely right this idea of the kind of differences between how keanu and patrick swayze are treating the water and this idea of toxic masculinity is really in some ways you know Swayze's character of Bodhi tries to kind of smooth those tensions over by just like repeating this really trite like pop psychology version of like Buddhist thought essentially Uh uh you know what I mean that like is very I'll say this it is very early 90s it's not like the movie is inventing that kind (laughs) of like be one with the waves and be one with the world is a very like early 90s philosophy Mm -hmm. but then to all of a sudden just be like here are some Nazi surfers. Yeah. Feel uh-huh. meth. It just is like, it's so incongruous with the way that the film is portraying the surfing kind of lifestyle. And also yes. like that intense ideological shift that happens with what the ex-presidents are doing in the first place. Yes. It makes sense to me that like a group of surfers would say, you know, fuck the system, middle fingers everywhere. Let's rob banks so we can just travel the world and surf. But at the end of the film, there's this weird switch where Swayze is like, man, don't forget we're doing this to like show the little guy that they don't have to, you know, be part of the system. That's not what you're doing. You (laughs) haven't been doing that the whole time. Yeah. It like, becomes like a very DB Cooper like like totally. analogy at the end where it's yeah. like we're these like we're like we're we're doing this for the little guy and we're jumping out of plane literally jumping out of planes with money. And it's yeah. like it's like, I'm like you're a, not Robin Hood. Yeah, like, you're, no. you're literally not Robin Hood. You get all your friends killed and then take the money without burying any of them. Yeah, like, because you're, you're definitely not Robin Hood. Because for the worst reason ever, you want to prove a point. Swayze spends the whole like last quarter of the movie getting all his friends killed to prove a point to Keanu. That's yes. it. That's the yeah. whole thing that mm-hmm. happens. And isn't mm-hmm. that ultimately just like how men kind of interact with one another? Honestly, like... it's the most anti-surfer, like pro-dude <laughs> thing that happens in the film. Yeah. It's just like, it's every time, like, like Jasmine, how did you feel about that? Like watching this, like, cause I know we discussed it. We always just watch these kind of, we watch them sort of together and discuss them as we're watching them. And, uh-huh. you know, I think that like, you know, I, I think like coming into this, I had, 
I grew up with this as like an 11 year old, you know, I saw this probably, I think my first R-rated film with my father was at 12 and that was Terminator 2 in 1992, sometimes shortly after this. My dad, once the R-rated movie, like my mom was out of town on business, my dad and I were home, my dad, like, which is like the complete opposite of the American cliche, and my (laughs) dad and I were home, we watched Terminator 2 because mom was out of the house and she wouldn't have let us, and... And from there, the floodgates were open and he could let me watch R-rated movies. And yeah. and, and at some point, we watched this together. And then I, mm-hmm. you know, so I remember, like, probably I was, it was probably 1992 when I saw it. And I had, like, just this, it's like, it is, it's big set pieces, it's action, it's Keanu Reeves, who I know from Bill and Ted, who I love. It's like, he looks cool, Laurie Petty's hot, I'm having, like, all these complicated emotions because everyone <laughs> in this movie makes me feel something, and, like, I'm not quite to that feeling something stage, but I'm close, and, yeah, like, yeah. and I'm, like, having all these kind of complex emotions about it, but I'm um, but I'm also just loving it through, like, the, a 12-year-old boy's eyes, where it's, like, violent, and it's forbidden, and it's fun, and it's big, and it's loud. Now, yeah. watching it now, you know, I identify a lot of this kind of like it it feels like it's this treatise like on on like how men are incapable of showing intimacy through anything other than violence and what mm-hmm. trauma that ends up leaving in their wake. Yeah. Jasmine, how did you feel? I know we discussed this a little bit last night. How did you feel about that? Like how did you feel about Bodhi and 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 Johnny as characters? Like do you feel like this movie really has a hero? So I don't know if it has a hero or a villain. Um, there were so many um, blog posts and essays and just analysis of Point Break that I read that was like very convinced that Bodhi was the villain because similar to what you were saying, Brett, it's like they were just being like, let's go against the system because it's problematic and it's fine because it's going against the system. Um, but all I could think is that it's, regardless of the movie making me like want to experience what the surfer lifestyle could be like, I didn't want to be either Johnny or Bodhi. If anything, I wanted to be Tyler because she like gave no fucks about anything. And then she like (laughs) just held her own against um, Keanu. But um, yeah, it it was, it was weird. I, I was talking to my sister as I was watching this and I was just like, I'm getting like real Fast and the Furious vibes with this. Just because it's like, (laughs) and for some reason, I, in that movie, even though it's like huge broad strokes and everything, it's more uh, easy to identify who's the hero and who's the villain in this, in that movie, as opposed to this one, where it's like everyone just is always constantly wanting to prove a point and they can throw away their morals and systems whenever they feel like it. I mean, not to turn this into a Fast and the Furious podcast, but I would argue that the Fast and the Furious tells this exact same story in a more diverse and ethical way. Honestly, this can be a Fast and Furious podcast. There is no franchise I stand more than Fast and Furious. Yeah. And literally Mm -hmm. any of my students will tell you when I sit and, and make them listen to me talk about like really how Fast and Furious is a future of actual inclusive filmmaking I agree. that recognizes that the film industry is global as opposed as opposed to what director bong would call local industry Uh, like we're talking about fast and furious Uh yeah i think that's a i think it's a really apt comparison i know that others have made it as well that the 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 two stories are very similar the first fast and the furious movie is essentially point break the difference in the first fast and the furious movie is that is that keanu 
like the Keanu character, the the Bodhi character, and uh-huh. and the Tyler character all work together to solve a problem. Uh-huh. You know, they all overcome their intimacy issues and become intimacy intimate with one another, and like form a family that allows them to overcome the actual villain of the film. Where yeah. in this, the villain is just masculinity. Uh-huh. It's just ego. The villain in Point Break is ego, and like how this like this sort of like slavish devotion to your own idea of greatness, to your own system, to your own code, to your own idea that like the way you perceive the world is the only way it should be perceived and therefore the only way it should be moved through means that ultimately everyone around you is going to be fucking hurt because you're just... I I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about the big deal that the film makes of Johnny Utah as a football star, Uh particularly as like a quarterback star, right? Because if we reduce football to like its most superficial elements, your star is your quarterback, right? Uh And so the reason, which I think is hilarious, that this gang of bank robbing surfers love him is because he went to the Rose Bowl one. Right? It's because he was it's because he's good at playing football and they just want to play football with him on the beach. And as a team sport that gets reduced to one person, right? All of a sudden, he's not like the best player. He's not the best person in the water. He doesn't know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So there is like this upending of a traditional kind of like hierarchy of masculinity that's embedded in sport when he's really bad at surfing, when he needs, quote unquote, a girl to teach him how to do it, right? When he has to like find his then master in Patrick Swayze. Uh Um, And in the way that Swayze uses that weird, like mentor teacher relationship that's Uh also like verges on light sadomasochism, like very light, (laughs) right you know what I mean like there's all of this stuff flowing and that's why you know when we were talking before we started recording that like it is I think absolutely fair Jasmine for you to have never seen this movie and been like yeah I'm totally ready for this to be super homoerotic yes Mm -hmm. but I call it just erotic because there's so much sexually charged energy that flows literally throughout the entire movie Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between everybody (laughs) now alicia would you say that that i mean i feel like that's kind of a hallmark of bigelow films until recently until the like iraq afghanistan movies like wouldn't you i mean you i'm sure you've seen a lot of bigelow films too like what like do you feel like that kind of is a through line through a lot of her earlier work i do it really reminds me i think the same energy exists in near dark for yes, sure 100 yeah, percent. yes and yeah. i think a lot of that you know whenever i think of not whenever but often when i think of Catherine bigelow i think of like the minuscule role that she played in born of flame you know lizzie borden's like like post post-punk punk feminist like dystopian masterpiece mm-hmm. oh. um, yeah from 1981 i mean it's incredible okay i need to and, see it that description sounds incredible oh yeah. Jasmine, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely gonna love it but like you know bigelow as a director is so interesting she has this fine arts background she was totally into like the east village avant-garde in the in the 80s in new york city um and her like 
how people think of her now in like that zero dark 30 mode mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is really not, I feel like the tenor of most of her filmmaking. No, not at all. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and even like, even in something like The Hurt Locker, there's a lot of sexuality that just yes. flows through that movie. Um, and in Zero Dark Thirty, I think necessarily the topic is going to close down just some of those channels. Yes. Um, I also don't know if the lead she has in that film is really, in Jessica Chastain, is really the point for like exploring like unbounded sexual energy. She just <laughs> yeah. doesn't really have that. She, I mean, nothing against her. That's just no, not really her vibe. No. You know what I mean? <laughs> but Bigelow has never, and like, I'm thinking about you know, something like Blue Steel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, or Strange Days, Ooh, which Strange is Days. like one of the weirdest erotic films ever. Yes, yeah, it's got a at, lot of crazy, it, it predicted a lot of our obsessions with sort of existing sexually online in some interesting ways. It did, and also yeah. like the kind of chemistry between Ray Fiennes and Angela Bassett is either zero or a hundred. Like there's no in between in that film. And I think that kind of like uncomfortable, I'm not sure if this is hot, but I actually think it's hot space Mm -hmm. is really where Bigelow has spent a lot of her time until her like later films. Mm -hmm. And this to me, point break to me is like, is like one of her, I'm not going to say Genesis because like really I think Near Dark is where it's at in that. But like it is one of those films where she is very happy to just let the horniness flow from person to person like throughout the entire film. Yeah, I think it's, I think that's, that's apt. And, and I like, I think that's like, that is a, you know, that is who she is as a filmmaker for a long time. I think you're right. I think in up until, I mean, even, I think it's great that you mentioned like that there's still all that weird sexual energy in the Hurt Locker, even because I do think that there's, there's so much like, just like, I feel like the story that she's trying to tell, or maybe that she, you know, maybe she's not trying to tell this, but the story that I I pull through this a lot of times is that so often men will just let, I know I've mentioned this already, but the violence stand in for intimacy or violence stand in for like, comfort in sexuality and like even this there's a moment where like you know where Bodhi and and Johnny finally fight at the end in the water and there's like and you get that like you kind of go back to that like parallel it's a parallel shot to the beginning of the film like it's like a bookend thing it looks Mm. very similar and it's just like and it's like you get this you almost I had this feeling watching it where I was like if the two of you would just make out (laughs) no one would have had to die like no one would have had to die and I I think it's I think we and we when we mentioned that we talked you know the person that gets caught you know we everyone that dies all of Bodhi's friends that die they're they're criminals and the and the film has like you know it doesn't have a lot of gray area about criminality like they're not like it's not saying a lot that criminality is wrong but it's also not saying a lot that you deserve to live if you are a criminal like so the person that I think is probably most hurt or that the film like spends the most time hurting is Tyler and I think it's like this that's a good place like when we talk about how at the end of the film even though she's been kidnapped in order to motivate Johnny at the end of the film Tyler isn't even present it's just Bodie and Johnny just like at the beginning just it's Bodie Johnny and water and that's Mm -hmm. all you get at the end there is no Tyler so she's the film has treated her as disposable and I'd like to hear both of your perspectives on this because it's interesting I think like 
like to me it felt it, it almost felt like i mean aside from just like the the tired kind of like we have to damsel the one female character in the film to motivate the men like i think it's interesting that you have this filmmaker in Catherine Bigelow who's a woman who largely has you know even in interviews before has talked about how she had to kind of move in these you know traditional genre spaces action films and science fiction films horror films and to try to tell these stories about race and gender and like this feels like you know she was criticized when this movie came out for it being the most commercial film she had made and I, and I'm interested like in, in like hearing Elle's perspective on Tyler and how the film treats her. And if you wonder if in some ways she's a vehicle for Bigelow almost because Tyler's surrounded by all of this ego and is the only person who's making any sense of it at all. Like, Alicia, first to you, like, how did you feel about Tyler? How did you feel about how the film treats this character? Because she's the only, I mean, there's only two women in the film with speaking roles and they do not talk to each other. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I mean, I... Okay, this is a really complicated question. And it is some, it is an amazing question. And it's some, in part influenced by, we had talked before we started taping, um, that, you know, Lori Petty in the early 90s, like kind of was it, right? She was something that people hadn't really seen before on screen. She was certainly something I hadn't seen before on screen. Um, and I really connected with her um, because she was able to hold her own against like a cacophony of dudes in this film. And when I, on, the, on a rewatch, like I do still agree with that statement. But earlier, you know, Jasmine was talking about like, who's the hero, who's the villain. The only person I think that really comes off as a hero in this film is Tyler. Um, specifically because, you know, Tyler is, she survives, right? She, and she has been surviving despite like the fuckery of, again, this cacophony of dudes that's around her. And she survives in spite of the fact that she is really a kind of stand-in upon which Bodhi and Johnny work out their issues with each other through, right? Yeah, that's exactly um, what she does. Yeah, like yeah. she, and I do wish, and I'm going to say this, I wish at the end she wasn't running through the desert in like a white nighty. Oh Johnny my God. Yeah. I uh -huh. really do feel like that's a disservice to her character. Agreed. I, I do also understand that it is in service of genre convention and studio notes. I get it. I just wish it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But she is really the only person in the film who is willing to one, be emotionally vulnerable mm -hmm, and two, mm -hmm. actually able to withstand what it means to be emotionally vulnerable with other people. Mm. And I think if there was no Tyler in the film, this movie would be really boring. I agree. Like I it's... think it'd be really boring. And so to me, Tyler, Lori Petty, like she is our hero. She is, at least to me, the person that any audience member can connect with. Yeah. Jasmine, how She's did you our feel? point of identification for sure. Yeah. She is. Yeah. How did, did you feel that way? Did you feel like you saw some identification in Tyler? How did you feel about Tyler I think, watching this? I, I think I might have, only because as I was watching, I 
had similar like the same beats that she had I was just like skeptical I was like kind of astounded I was like bored and then I was frustrated and I was angry which is like the same beats that her character goes as the movie goes on the and then um I forget which one of you said it but before we started um uh, recording we were talking about how um Keanu Reeves and Lori Petty look super similar mm. um I think Alicia you were saying like maybe um Lori Petty has more like product in her hair but a other little than bit that, more yeah but other than that like their silhouette is the same their hair is the same like their lankiness is the same even their style clothing style is the same and so I I totally see what you mean by her being a stand-in for uh, for Bodie and Johnny to like try to at least be human um but I don't know it's it's also a testament, I think, to how many times we've seen female characters be sacrificed for the sake of storytelling, being, mm-hmm. like, fridged, or just, like, their whole character development hinge upon, like, a man, that I was just like, okay, this tracks. Like, this really cool uh, woman who, her first introduction in the movie, um, yes, she was wearing a wetsuit, yes, she was in the water, it wasn't, like, a livi- like a lascivity lascivious like pan over of her body like I didn't even realize she was the woman until she started speaking she's just like what are you doing to Mm. um, Johnny Utah and I love that because I was like this is why like the female gaze exists and why this movie is often lauded as like the most female gazy action movie ever Um, because it's like any kind of the movie sorry the camera moves along with the characters instead of like objectifying the characters Mm -hmm. um yeah I don't know it was just uh, there were a lot of feelings that I had and I think listening to the two of you kind of talk about it the fact that it mirrored what Tyler was feeling is she's definitely the point of identification yeah, it didn't make me feel any better about her not appearing or wearing a fucking negligee when the last thing we saw her in was a flannel shirt. Where did the flannel go? When did they put her in a negligee? She would never wear that negligee to sleep in. No, never no, in a like, million fucking years. No. Like, did they uh-uh. put her in that? Like, did the kidnappers right? put her in this negligee? Which is weird if they did. Yeah, it is weird. Like no. if you're kidnapping some idol, it's 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 such a strange note. It is. Yes. It does yeah. feel like a studio note for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, also, think... she fucking like falls on Johnny, like kissing him all over. Which I mean, fine, I understand it's Keanu, he's beautiful, but girl, <laughs> like because I mean, of him, you got a knife in your throat. Like, come right. on. Yeah. Also, he doesn't like you that much. No. 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 I mean, his entire your entire relationship is based literally on lies. Yeah. And like yeah. and and like and like there's so much just like like it's so insane like like both you mentioned like like kind of like there's like DS kind of kink stuff going on between them, like 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 sadomasochism going on between mm-hmm. Bodie and Johnny. Mm-hmm. Like there's like there's like an un, it's almost trauma bonding. Like Bodie is trauma yeah. bonding Johnny, mm-hmm. and then Johnny is kind of trauma bonding Tyler, and then like and, and then Tyler is like the only person, yeah, to your point, that has any legitimate emotional intelligence in this film. Like it's like, and I I, I just hit on this one line, and I want to bring this up when we're, while we're talking about her, like like they there's a line where like Johnny is about to come clean to her. He's mm-hmm. about to tell her everything that he's an FBI agent. And he's been lying to her and all this yes. stuff. And, and he can't quite get it out. And her yeah. line back to him is 
men are so bad at this. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And she is literally saying, and I feel like if not, like I feel like you've got this this female director who's working inside the genre conventions of a largely masculine industry. Mm-hmm. She's a female auteur making science fiction and 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 action films in the eighties and nineties, which was uh-huh. you know she's you know it's she's unfairly been placed sometimes into the shadow of her ex husband James Cameron, despite the fact that she had made critically acclaimed films before Point Break and despite the fact that they were only uh, married for two years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and like she was a, considered an auteur before they were ever married. She he had mm-hmm. nothing. I mean, they influenced one another, clearly. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. just that one influenced the other. Right. And then you have this line in this like just this dick swinging party of a movie <laughs> where the one female character when presented with a man who is almost intimate Mm -hmm. almost honest just says men are so bad at this (laughs) and i'm like this is the best line in the book tyler has all of the best lines in the movie she does she i mean she's the only one that actually is allowed emotional range Mm -hmm. like she is the only one that's mad when she finds out keanu's been lying to everybody yeah you know what I mean? Like, Bodhi takes it as a challenge. Like, oh, I'm going to show him what he's really been missing. Yeah. Right? So and odd. she's like, she's the only one who's like, go kick rocks. Fuck you. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. how could you do this to me? And she very rightly, right? The first thing mm-hmm. she says is like, are your parents even dead? Yeah. Like, did you really need to re-traumatize me mm-hmm. for your mm-hmm. stupid mission? Yeah. 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 Your stupid mission for your stupid FBI that doesn't function like the real FBI. <laughs> no! That like, <laughs> like yeah. this, doesn't function this way at all. Like, no. and also, it's so it's so weird that like you know you brought up just how bad he is at being undercover. It's not like we haven't seen a thousand films about undercover cops at this point in Hollywood, and like it's not like we don't we know what at least what Hollywood thinks that looks like, and this doesn't even try to make it look like that. No. Like it's and it's funny because I saw an interview from like Moving Pictures, which was like I think a BBC show where Bigelow talks about the making of this film and Alicia to your what's interesting to your point earlier about how she's very concerned with making this look as cool as possible Mm -hmm. like in the moving pictures interview all she talks about is like how she's filming the bank rob the bank jobs like all she talks about is like and then we did handheld here and it's like and she's like i don't care if my dailies are shit i just want to make sure i get everything so i can stitch Mm -hmm. together the story and and the bank the like she shot those bank shots, those bank job shots, that they look unlike any bank job in a movie had looked at that time. Like yeah. there yeah. is stuff in it, like the 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 chase sequence. I think we would be like we've we've really talked a lot about like the emotional core of this film. Let's talk a little bit about the filmmaking because I do think the filmmaking is fantastic. You know, it really is. And Brett, you mentioned the chase sequence earlier. And I, in my notes, when I'm watching it, I was like, oh, the iconic running through LA houses and yards. And halfway through the chase sequence, I was like, wait, it's iconic because of this. Because of this movie. I'm like, this is why I think it's iconic. Because every time I see this, I think about Point Break. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's so iconic that like, like um uh that that hot fuzz like parodies yes, the entire yes, yes. Shot, the entire, the entire thing. scene yeah yeah. yeah, shooting into the air. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You've never and shot like, your gun in the air and gone ah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's <laughs> and it's so it's so long, it's so drawn out, and it's so 
like really specifically technical, which I have to say is not unusual. So one of the kind of strategies for women working behind the scenes in Hollywood since like the thirties, when women were like writing literally every movie you've ever loved Mm -hmm. has been to avoid the kind of like, how can girls do this question by focusing on craft. And it's been a strategy of Bigelow's and very understandably so to really deflect questions of how can you lift a heavy camera to you know to really talking about her focus on craft and her focus on technicalities and her focus on detail Mm. right and it's not just her it's many women that work behind the scenes particularly directors Mm -hmm. although she's become kind of fairly well known for um and i mean rightly so she's a really technical director you know, and I understand like she will forever, as you said earlier before James, be in the shadow of Cameron, even though I feel like in Hollywood terms, they were barely married, like yeah. barely married. Right? And have had like a friendship that like trans, like that they produce each other's movies. Like they've been like, they, they are still like, they've been a part of each other's lives long yes. after the marriage. And like, she is just like objectively on paper, a better director than she yeah, is. 100%. Yeah. Like a thousand percent. But he is so willing to embrace like both like new technologies uh-huh. that overshadow kind of story narrative emotion and technicality right where she is much more focused in perfecting craft and in being like that type of director that other people want to be as 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 opposed to just doing doing like the new cool thing which is like cameron's career has been and i'm not saying it's a bad career except for avatar that movie fucking sucks oh god like (laughs) it's just like it's just like he's had like a career based in technology and she's had a career based in craft. That's an excellent place, I think, um, to leave the discussion of Point Break and, and get um, get into the next little bit. Alicia, here on the Keanu Soars, uh, we have a sequence or a, a segment that we like to call How Many Woes? So far, I like to joke that almost everyone who's appeared on the podcast has fundamentally changed this ranking system. <laughs> so no pressure. Uh, but oh my as, God. It, as it stands right now, uh, you can give your opinion on Point Break. Uh, at one out of five woes, you can give your opinion on it as a film in the overall Hollywood, you know, the overall scope of Hollywood films. Mm-hmm. You can give your opinion on it as one out of five woes in the overall scope of Keanu's films. Uh, but then also after you've chosen what you, how you want to rank this movie, uh, you have to rank, uh, how attractive Johnny Utah is on a scale of one to five woes as well. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) I mean, you can start there actually. It's probably easier to start with how attractive Johnny Utah is. So I'm going to say this for me, Johnny Utah in Point Break is definitely like a 3.5 out of five hot woes Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna say for I mean two very specific two very specific reasons one there is something so just like universally attractive about him Uh like he at some point Johnny Utah can be anything to anybody Mm -hmm. and I like the idea 
of him being non-specific and just conforming to anything that I want. Like I just, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But the end of the film, when we talked a little bit about this before we started taping, the end of the film when he's tracked Bodhi to Australia Mm -hmm. and he's in the rain yet again and his hair is a little bit longer and he's wearing like the, he's wearing jeans, he's wearing a jean jacket with like a shirling collar. Mm -hmm. He has very much transitioned into my own private Idaho Keanu. Oh. which I love more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, if only because it reminds me of River Phoenix, which should also be a, a totally different podcast. Um, but <laughs> mm-hmm. so, yeah, to me, it's like everything. It's action hero Keanu. It's sensitive indie Keanu. It's like kind of wise old Keanu because he's mm-hmm. learned something by the end of the film. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like, yeah, it's really there for me in yeah. terms of his hotness. I think yeah. that you what you've hit on in describing how hot the character is, is that this is kind of, I mean, you mentioned this before we recorded, but this is kind of like every, every like all of the multitudes that Keanu contains mm-hmm. are almost sort of born here. Like, yeah. like yeah. everything that we know him as now, like even, even the stuff that he did to prepare for this role, like he went and trained with the UCLA quarterback coach so that the one sequence in the film where he plays yeah. quarterback, he would appear to be doing it correctly. Yeah. Like he's just like everything about him that we love now is kind of at, at play in Point Break. And I think so for me, that also puts him in terms of like the Keanu Ove, like yeah. the movie ranking. Mm-hmm. That really puts Point Break at about a four to five for me. Yeah. Because, and I'm ranking that out of the Keanu mythology. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Right? Like, you can watch Point Break and you can see aspects of every other role Keanu has taken since Point Break in Johnny Utah. Oh, damn. Like everything. I mean, even I was like, at one point, Gary Busey calls him Hotshot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, we're on our way to speed now, aren't yeah. we? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Every, we really are. Like, the why we have like even the Keanu in Always Be My Maybe and the Keanu <laughs> in the most recent John Wick mm-hmm. have their genesis in Johnny Utah. Yeah. I think that's a great that's a great point. And I yeah, I mean it's it really is like and, and it's crazy because Bigelow like wanted him. Bigelow mm-hmm. yeah. thought she he was great. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was like, "I won't do this film without Keanu Reeves." They wanted like, w- like they it was Willem Dafoe, it was Johnny Depp, it was like people Fucking that they can cons- Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick before Stop Keanu. It right, now. like what? I, Excuse I, like, me. What a terrible film that would have been. <laughs> oh, God. It's like thinking about if if Eric Stoltz had actually been in Back to the Future. Had been Marty McFly. Yeah, it yeah. Been, like I mean, I have like, very not. strong thoughts on that. Very yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on? Point Break. How do you rank these two? The you know how do you rank it, and how do you rank Johnny Utah? Yeah, so um, I, I have very actually similar like rationales as Alicia, but my rankings are very different. Um, so hotness. Um, I was like, is this the hottest Keanu has ever looked? Yes. So he's a. This is a five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, mostly because um, at the end when he's in Australia, all of a sudden. 
both Keanu and Patrick Swayze like seem to have aged like five or six years and they're just like incredibly rugged and I can see like baby John Wick in that and I was just like good god this is this is this is my kryptonite right here Um, is just like a good look (laughs) also like the opening how no one has ever told me that the first 30 seconds of the movie after like the beginning credits is just a wet like Keanu in very tight clothes just like moving around like how no one ever told me that because I would have watched Point Break much earlier if I had known that <laughs> like yeah yeah you it's, know what Jasmine yeah. that just is reinforcing to me mm-hmm. like something that I've been feeling and talking with the two of you about this movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we take Point Break for granted oh we take Point Break for granted uh-huh. like I took for how, granted how do you mean like how do you like, mean I mean, I think that it's a it's a film that, you know, we think back on. It's like, oh, campy, Keanu, silly mm-hmm. surfer movie, mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze, right? Um, but it really is the genesis of who we understand Keanu to be now, right? Yeah, yeah. And when, like, of course, like, it never occurred to me to be like, oh, Jazz, you should totally go watch <laughs> the first five minutes of Point Break to see a hot, wet Keanu. Yes. Because yes, I yeah. take for granted that hot, wet Keanu was always there for us. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I love lives, that. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Jazz, what about ranking Point Break? Where, where are you on the woe scale for the actual film itself? Oh, yeah. Um, so in the <laughs> Kaura or like the Keanu mythology, um, I said three because um, the rough elements of the Keanu I'm familiar with in other movies is in Point Break in very rough measure. So I was like, I know the ups and downs for the rest of his movies and what I like and what I don't like. And so that's why I gave it like a firmly middle of the road three. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, ranking Johnny Utah, I got to be honest, if I'm in this universe <laughs> as a as a queer man, uh, the first person at that party I'm hitting on is Tyler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the second person at that party I'm hitting on is Bodhi. Oh. <laughs> and the and then like like I'm probably like so like Johnny I'm just like I'm like I I would have felt like narc vibes off Johnny pretty hard <laughs> to be honest. I so, mean his shirt he is the only person with his shirt tucked in at that party. Yeah, yes. I mean like yes. the, and yes. all the other ex presidents are like. And it's it's crazy. Like speaking of the ex presidents, we didn't talk anything about the wild ass bank robbing gang. We didn't really talk about how incredible Swayze is in this. He's great. Swayze is mm-hmm. fucking great in this. This is a Keanu podcast, so we didn't talk a lot about yeah. old Pat Swayze. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would have definitely clocked that dude as being kind of a scumbag. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know that I would have. Uh, but for me, growing up, it was like it was Lori Petty, and like, mm-hmm. and so like probably is like as far as like a hotness, like physical hotness. Yeah, he's a he's a three three and a half but like mm-hmm. i'm not dating this guy um <laughs> and and that's that's a big move for me is like if i would actually date the keanu um as far as like where this ranks in his oeuvre and the key um i'm probably a five i mean i gotta be mm-hmm. honest like this is a sacred text like <laughs> we talk a lot about this you know and it's great that you mentioned mythology we talk a lot on the show about like there are keanu movies that you can just forget or that you maybe never even saw Mm-hmm. like like replicas or destination wedding mm-hmm. there are keanu films that are like right on the edge that like you've definitely seen and maybe you like but they're not like movies that you necessarily recommend to other people like <laughs> devil's advocate yeah, yeah um yeah and then there are keanu films john wick the matrix bill and ted that are like absolutely unimpeachably great like it's just movies that we all love and we have like some of them we've lived with for very specific amounts of time 
and I and I talk a lot about like the, you kind of have three different paths, and like there are certain films that are that middle of the road. Maybe you love them, but maybe they're not for everyone. Like a Scanner Darkly, mm. and then there's or like a Johnny Demonic, and and then there's movies that are sacred text, and I think that Point Break is a sacred text. I think especially for all the reasons Alicia mentioned, like this is the genesis of so many different Keanu's that we live with now. It is him as it is his birth as an action star and i believe he is our greatest action star i mean i find it hard i it is hard to find a better action film than the matrix and made by like two trans siblings about mm-hmm. like like being who you are and being who you are at all costs and like it is such a beautiful film and he's part of what makes it what it is and yeah, so I think Point Break is a sacred text. I think it launches so much of what we're here to talk about. And mm-hmm. so for that, I'm a five. This is a five star for me. This movie is very movie is very important to, to a young Brett and an old Brett, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. I mean, listening to you talk about the film like that, I'm realizing that like even people who haven't seen Point Break have benefited from Point Break. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? 100%. Because every other canon movie that they love in some way, small, big, whatever has Mm -hmm. been shaped by point break. Yeah. You know, the band that influenced your favorite band might not be, might not be perfect, but your favorite band wouldn't exist without them. Yeah. You know, and point break is like the, the band that influenced your favorite band. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that brings us to our third and final segment on the Keanu Swords, a segment that we like to call Does It Matrix? <laughs> now, Alicia, this is, uh, we've, once we've reviewed the film uh, to, to the best of our ability, which we certainly have with Point Break, thank you so much for helping with this discussion. It's been absolutely fantastic. Nothing, yeah. nothing could have made me happier than talking about Point Break like this. Um, <laughs> I've been waiting for someone to talk to me about Point Break like this my whole life. and uh so once we've really kind of come to the conclusions about our own opinions about it we like to try to figure out if this is actually just another version of the matrix that the machines have designed to keep neo busy um jasmine since this is your first ever viewing of of uh of point break let's go with you first how do you feel does this matrix so I was actually surprised uh, to about my answer because when I first saw Point Break, I wouldn't have said yes, but definitely yes, because there's literally a Trinity Neo-esque scene when Tyler patches Johnny up after getting all beat up. And I was just like, just swap out like the setting for the chair and this is the Matrix. And it I can see this and very argue that a lot of the like fighting scenarios uh, sorry fighting scenes or um johnny utah putting on like weird stoner surfer voices or whatever like that could be very much like a um beginning scenario where neo tests out his fighting abilities as well as his like new skills that he's garnered um as well as at the end johnny utah kind of vaguely knows what's right what's wrong what the system is what the man is he doesn't like adhere to any of it, but he has like some sort of idea. Um, so that's why I said this definitely matrices. Okay. Okay. That's fair. I, I have been turning this over in my head all week <laughs> and I'm 
so close to saying yes. I want to say yes because it is so absurd because there are such huge set pieces. There are things that human beings just could not actually achieve. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say no. And I rarely, Alicia, I rarely say no. Interesting. I, think I, the first one. I Interesting. said Destination Wedding was a part of the Matrix. So <laughs> like, um, I don't <laughs> think, I don't think that Johnny Utah is virtuous enough to be Neo. I think that Johnny Utah is a profoundly flawed, egotistical, ultimately toxic person who gets who hurts everyone that he loves. I mean, if you look at Pappas, Gary Busey's character, as the mm. Morpheus stand-in, like, he gets Morpheus killed. Neo in The Matrix goes at, literally goes out of his way, puts his own life on the line to try to save Morpheus and achieves that. Morpheus, to him, is more important than his own life. And you never have a moment where it feels like Johnny Utah feels that way about Pappas. Mm. Trinity... Trinity's love to him is a thing that is sacrosanct. It cannot be manipulated. And all we see him do to Tyler is manipulation. Mm. So even though he does throw his badge away at the end, even though he does say, I'm done with the system, I don't think this is Neo. I don't think this character doesn't feel like a paragon to me. Just feels like kind of a dick. So (laughs) I think for the first time ever... I'm going to say, no, Point Break does not Matrix. Now, Alicia, what we like to do is give the guests the final say. We want to ask you, how do you feel? Do you feel like Point Break could be another version of the Matrix? And ultimately, are you a yes or a no? So this is actually really hard because you've both made fantastic arguments. (laughs) Why, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that, you know, kind of Jasmine's examples really do feel matrix like but maybe almost too like simulation like Uh, yeah Mm -hmm. which maybe you know like okay so i can see how that might matrix um but in thinking about brett's comments about morpheus and trinity and keanu Uh you know at first i was like oh no this has to matrix because i mean maybe this is an unpopular opinion I think that Neo and Trinity actually have zero chemistry in the Matrix. Yeah, no, I don't think that's an unpopular opinion. I think okay. I think it's, I think it's extremely unfortunate <laughs> like casting. Zero. They have no. Um, and I think that he really does not. Keanu does not exhibit. I think the chemistry in Point Break is one way. Yes. I think Laurie Petty is much better at exhibiting it than he is, and that's yeah. fine. I think it's in service of the story, so that works. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, at the end of the, the day, I don't really believe that Johnny Utah has given up on the system because he invested in the system enough to somehow convince the FBI to let him follow one random bank robber from LA to Sumatra, (laughs) (laughs) to Australia. (laughs) Um, And so, no, I think he's still, I think he's, he's still into it. So yeah, I just do think he's a dick. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of this movie, ultimately all Johnny Utah is, is a fucking cop. Honestly, he really just, he is a cop. 
like just a fucking cop (laughs) even when he tries to pretend he's not like he's still a fucking cop yeah that's it that's all he really is no no canadian tuxedo can wash that away (laughs) no No. it can't and i i had that thought he threw that badge in the in the he had to threw that badge in the ocean and the thought that went through my head was you have to actually quit throwing your badge yes, in the ocean is that a doesn't resignation. Count. Yeah. also not, not your jurisdiction dude <laughs> no. like it doesn't count no and i and i think the fact that ultimately they were going to make a sequel to this movie should tell you everything you know about johnny utah not leaving the system behind <laughs> well i think this has been an absolutely ex- great conversation i think we are at two no's and a and one yes which means that point break ultimately does not matrix and uh alicia thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for all of this great perspective this has been so awesome we want to give you the space here at the end if you want to plug anything if you want to talk about your department if you have any articles you want to tell people about uh if you want to tell people where to find you on social or if you'd like to do none of those things uh either well, way. <laughs> i first and foremost want to thank you so so much for having me on this podcast it was an absolute joy i am so happy to have had a reason to revisit point break excuse me point break Mm -hmm. because as i said uh earlier i think we take this movie for granted and i think i was taking it for granted too Mm -hmm. so i was really happy to have a chance to sit down and watch it and this conversation has been absolutely fantastic so thank you a million thank yous for having me on the podcast um, I actually have a book coming out in May. Oh my gosh. So it is, I have two book projects coming out, one this year and one next year. Mm-hmm. So I have a book coming out in May. Um, it is from the uh, Edinburgh University Press's Refocus series. So it's a book all about director named Doris Wishman. And if you've never heard of Doris Wishman before, that's okay, because this is the <laughs> first book ever about her. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. We have, it's an edited collection. So we have scholars from all over the world talking about Doris Wishman. Who was she? She was an extremely prolific woman director who made sexploitation and adult films oh. in the 1960s all the way through the 2000s. Oh, wow. All so right. if you've ever wanted to know anything about, for example, a movie, some type of movie called Bad Girls Go to Hell, uh, do I have a book for you? <laughs> um, sounds, like or, kind of, sounds like my kind yeah, of movie for sure. <laughs> or The Sex Perils of Paulette. I've gotcha. Yeah, amazing. These um, titles are incredible. <laughs> yeah. So she was incredible. She was truly one of a kind. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited for this volume. Um, so that's Refocus, the films of Doris Wishman. It's coming out in May. And then in, what is it, 2021? In 2022, I have a book coming out on second wave exploitation director, Dor- uh, excuse me, Stephanie Rothman. Um, Stephanie Rothman made amazing films like The Student Nurses, Terminal Island, The Working Girls, mm-hmm. um, hardcore feminist exploitation films that are really super concerned with labor and class politics. Oh, sign me if, the fuck up. <laughs> if that sounds like something you're interested in, I've got a book for you. So that one's called Radical Acts, um, The Labor of Filmmaking and the Cinema of Stephanie Rothman. And that'll be that. Thank you. That'll be next year. You can find information on these projects and a bunch of other stuff that I've written on my website. 
which is simply aliciacosma.com. It's A-L-I-C-I-A-K-O-Z, M is in mother, A.com. There's a link to the refocus book if you want to pre-order it and learn more about Bad Girls Go to Hell <laughs> and all kind of other updates on the work and stuff that's coming out you can find there. That is awesome. We are so excited for both of those. Thank Cannot you. wait to read them and we will promote them on our small social following. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully a growing, but currently small social following. I'm certain it's growing. <laughs> uh, Jasmine, do you have, uh, you want to tell people where to find you on the internet? Anything that you want to talk about before we go? Oh, yes. Uh, you can find me everywhere at Blueberry Jelly. Um, and yeah I mean I like I said last podcast episode someone called me a peri cinematic enthusiast and so that is how I'm going to be identifying as from <laughs> the rest of time so that's me <laughs> and you can find the show uh, online at uh, it's at Keanu Sewers on Twitter it is at the underscore Keanu Sewers on Instagram. If you want to find me, I am at G Brett Williams everywhere. My website is gbrettwilliams.com. If you want to see any of the short films, advertisements, or comics that I have made. Uh, and if you want to support the show, we have a Patreon, but we'll tell you all about that in the show notes. So if you have heard all the way this far, you've already heard about the Patreon. Uh, <laughs> so this has been the Keanu Sewers. That was Alicia Cosma. I am G Brett Williams. Jasmine, do you want to take us out? Yes, I am Jasmine, and we have finished talking about Point Break. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.